Are you living out your dreams and goals? Do you feel self-actualized? How about successful? Do I sound like I'm trying to sell you on a motivational seminar? Absolutely. But all joking aside, professional success means different things to different people. And because this season we're talking about work, it feels essential to explore why people work, what different individuals are striving to achieve, and the diversity that exists within conceptions of success and professionalism. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I've succeeded at some of my personal and professional aspirations, failed at others. I have goals and dreams, some of which are within reach, others I may never realize. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people, and to thank Indigenous people past, present, and future for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is Episode 9 of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This is success, working from the inside out. In this episode, the people you'll hear from have a variety of identities, career trajectories, and aspirations. And because success is subjective, their metrics for assessing their success differ. They spoke about many different variables, money, status, power, freedom, creative expression, independence, interconnection, community, belonging, and a host of other elements. And your definition of success may include these elements or others. For some of us, professional success might mean not having to work at all. But whatever it means to you, it's clear that success can't be assessed from the outside. It has to be determined by each person individually. Damon West and I spoke about how, for a long time, how others saw him and thought his life must be didn't match his lived experience. People viewed him as a success, but he felt like a failure, and his life choices reflected that. Nowadays, Damon is a college professor, internationally known keynote speaker, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change, which Forbes listed in the top 20 books you need to read to crush 2020. But that hasn't always been his path. Damon's autobiography, The Change Agent, How a Former College QB Sentenced to Life in Prison, Transformed His World, vividly tells how he positively transformed a Texas maximum security prison from a pot of boiling water to a pot of coffee. I grew up having every advantage and every privilege, every opportunity in life. White middle class guy in America, came from a two-parent home, great education, uh, opportunities that most kids would dream of having, great athlete. I got into substance abuse at a young age. When I was 10, I started drinking. When I was 12, I started smoking pot. Had a lot of character issues, but I could throw a football. I was a very gifted athlete, and I got a lot of breaks cut to me in life. Scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. Life seemed to be going pretty smooth, but at 20 years old, I got injured against Texas A&M. My football career was over, and my identity was kind of lost inside that injury as well. And I turned to more hardcore drugs to deal with my, my loss. I cocaine, ecstasy pills. Graduated from college in 1999. I moved off to Washington, D.C. I got a job working in Congress. I worked for a guy running for president. 
And in 2004, I moved to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world. And it was at that job as a stockbroker that I was introduced to methamphetamine for the first time. And yeah, and methamphetamine is the most, I tell people all the time, it's the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug ever created by man. And it took me about 18 months to go from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. And as a homeless person, I started committing crimes to fund my addiction, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units. And eventually I started breaking into people's homes. And then eventually I put together my own burglary crew. And these burglaries went on for three years. They called them the Uptown Burglaries for the Uptown neighborhood of Dallas and beyond. Affluent neighborhoods were being broken into. I was breaking into people's houses. And on July 30th, 2008, a Dallas SWAT team finally took me down. They arrested me that day and then threw me in Dallas County Jail. And about a year later, I went to trial in 2009, and the jury spared no punishment at sentencing, even though these were non-aggravated property crimes where no one was ever home, no one was ever hurt. They sentenced me to the maximum, life in prison. So it was my first felony conviction. I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. Other people perceive Damon as someone with all of the advantages in life. And there's no denying that as a white, middle-class American, he did have some definite advantages. But I can attest from my own personal experiences that outward, quote-unquote, success doesn't always translate to inward fulfillment. And while social definitions of success continue to center around markers of privilege, such as money, status, masculinity, whiteness, physical ability, there is often a disparity between perception and reality. When I asked Jonathan Howe what constitutes professionalism and professional success, he told me that historically success has been wrapped up in standards of whiteness, but that even if we do measure our performance by external metrics, it's the internal ones that hold far more significance. Jonathan is a professor at Temple University whose research centers broadly on the intersection of race, sport, and education. Within these intersections, he focuses on Black male college athletes, as well as Black coaches and athletic administrators. He has presented his work at national and international conferences, and his work has been published in numerous academic journals. Who gets to define success? Who gets to define professionalism. And I guess sort of the reoccurring theme of whiteness and sort of the standard, who gets to define it, who has historically defined it, and what are those standards that we hold ourselves to now? You're starting to see, I guess, a slight shift in that. Um, You're starting to see more agency exerted by racially minoritized individuals. But the standard of whiteness defines professionalism, defines success overall. It's part of that developmental process for individuals as to defining success for themselves, as opposed to this inherent standard that is set, that is sort of hanging over our heads per se. So for me, success is really just achieving what I want to achieve, achieving my goals without being defined by someone else per se, right? I have my goals that I want to achieve, whether that's professionally, whether that's personally, I have specific goals that I want to achieve. Sometimes those goals are influenced by society, right? There are certain things in life that we want to achieve as a professor. Obviously, I want to reach tenure as a professor and continue my career. So those are goals that are defined uh, professionally and how we achieve those goals is often defined throughout this standard of professionalism and what success really is. And even within my position, right, as a professor, as a faculty member, if I want to get tenure, I have to achieve certain criterions that 
will allow me to get tenure. And those are set forth by someone way above me. I don't have a voice in what's in the tenure document and what's going to allow me to get tenure. This is a metric that is set by individuals who have come before me and say, hey, this is what we define as success. This is what it takes to be a tenured faculty member, right? And I may not always agree with those things because there's also a newer wave of professors of scholarship, right, that challenges the way that we think or way we thought 100 years ago in academia is not the same way that we should be thinking about academia today. There's different forms of research. There's different research that is valued than just publishing in all of these top journals five times a year and just publishing on quantitative data as opposed to talking to people and getting their experiences and things like that. So part of success for me is redefining what that success is or what it means to be professional or what it means to be established within. Success has to be established from within. And while certainly recognition and accolades are given to us from others, fulfillment can only be assessed on an internal, individual basis. So I asked a number of people whose voices you'll hear more of in this episode, what does success mean to you? Here's Rocky Maynor, a licensed financial coach, speaker, and workshop facilitator who previously worked as a human resources executive. Let me give you the tangible first, because the tangible is going to be obtained by the intangible. It's the significance. It's the impact. It's the lives that are changed. I love when people come up to me and say, do you remember when you said this at this day? That to me is the flowers while I'm alive. So that's the tangibles. To me, that's what success is. It's of significance. It's of impact. It's not even knowing your reach or the legacy that you've left in people where their future generations have been changed. So the tangibles is the impact. Having someone say, do you remember what? Do you remember what? And then the intangibles, it's those feelings. Going to bed at night, can we own the day today? Did you see, did you feel that? Like that um, fulfillment. If I died today, I spent it all. My tank's on empty. And that's success. That's the life of like, I spent it all today. I spared no bones. Everybody got loved on. And I just, I didn't put things off. I was like, on it, man. We own the day. Thank you, God. And yeah, that's the intangibles. Like you can't measure that. that that's like. Ah! Here's AC Folks, the executive officer of Folks Consulting, an LGBTQ plus sensitivity and transgender inclusion consulting firm. When I think of success, I think of being able to show up fully as who I am, as who I know myself to be. And to be able to perform at my highest levels and to achieve all that it is that I'm capable of achieving, that to me really is when I think about success, what success looks like. And in a professional setting, it is me being able to show up authentically and being able to still reach those key performance indicators, those milestones or whatever the case may be, but doing that as me, showing up as me and accomplishing those things. I think if if I'm not able to bring the fullness of myself to bear, I struggle with viewing that as a success. It might be considered professional in the eyes of whatever culture I am in, but I don't know that I could count it a success 
if I have to leave parts of myself, if I have to. Now, if I choose to leave parts of myself, then that's one thing. But if I have to leave parts of myself elsewhere, then I would, I would struggle to count that as success. For Deborah, Deb, Atella as well, success is tied to authenticity and self-expression. Deb is the author of the international best-selling book, Is This Job My Jam? The Guide for Grown-Ups Who Still Don't Know What They Want to Be. She's also a certified life coach, Reiki master, and meditation guide, and the host of a Tell It Like It Is podcast. People come to me all the time and they first start off with, oh, I want to know what my purpose is. You know, I can't find my job because I don't know what my purpose is. And I tell everyone that your purpose is to live your life in the truest, most authentic version of yourself that you can be to just live your life like as loud and true and full as you possibly can. That's your purpose here is to just be yourself. And so people, when they say, what's my purpose, what they're really saying or what they want to know is that they have done or they're doing something important. Well, what's more important than living your beautiful life, right? As yourself. So I take purpose right off the table when I work with people. It gets people stuck in inaction by trying to figure that out. So accept that you're your purpose, and now let's go move on and make some other changes. Timothy Welbeck is the director for the Center of Anti-Racism Research and an assistant professor of instruction at Temple University, a civil rights attorney, a scholar of law, race, and culture, a writer, and a hip-hop artist. He sees success as a spiritual endeavor that is both connected to the hereafter and deeply rooted in the present. My faith informs both how I view this current life and the one that is to come. And so part of living out my faith is to help to work towards creating a better world that we live in. The Bible says faith without works is dead. By way of example, that's the famous passage from the book of James, which is talking about, and James was actually admonishing religious people who were disregarding the tangible needs of the poor and saying, how can you see someone who is poor and destitute and lacking in their basic needs, or you have the means to give it to them, and you say, God bless you. I'm paraphrasing. But he functionally says, how can you say that and say you have the love of God in your heart? And then he says, faith without works is dead. And he basically says, I will show you my faith by my works. And so in many ways, that is how I live out my life in terms of my faith within interaction with people and the work that I do. Jokes aside, though, like one time I was talking to someone about this. And one thing he said was, you know, Jesus fed people, you know. <laughs> and so he was saying it's great to have all of these lofty ideas that you share with people to edify them spiritually and to prepare them for the life to come. But Jesus met people's real needs in a moment, too. So I think about that often just in a lighthearted sense as well. Like that's a real consideration, too. And so. For me, there are deep and practical applications to the faith, particularly in how we exercise it in our daily lives. Travel Anderson is an award-winning journalist, social curator, and world changer who has dedicated their career to centering the stories of those in the margins, gray spaces, and the intersections of life. They were named to the Roots 2020 list of the 100 most influential African Americans. And they told me that their definition of success has changed over time and continues to evolve. How do you define success for you? 
it shifts every other day, if I'm being quite honest with you. But I will say the me of today, success for me is about being happy. Success for me is about having an impact with my work, which I want to be clear, doesn't necessarily equate to having a wide reach. With the work that I'm doing today, if one person reads it or listens to it and a shift happens in them or they see themselves reflected back to them, that's success for me. Also success though, and you know, I don't know how many capitalists you have in your audience or anti-capitalists you have in your audience, but I also want to make top dollar for the work that I'm doing. And I think that it can get kind of dicey with folks when we start talking about the money, but you know, I'm a firm believer that those of us who are journalists, we were lied to when we were told that we had to take a vow of poverty to do this work. And part of it in my head is like, I think many of us have been led to believe that we can't dream as journalists. We have been led to believe that we have to take what is given to us because there are allegedly finite resources. And that's a bold-faced lie. And so it is important for me to also mention that part of success for me is about being able to have the financial security and wherewithal to do whatever the hell I want to do in life. And the, the joy, they say money don't buy happiness, but baby, I think it can get you kind of close <laughs> because money in our society, as it currently is structured, money is power. Money is freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of choice, freedom of creativity in a lot of ways. My idea of success, it's multifaceted, but at the core of it is about having the ability to be free in a lot of ways. And that does mean that sometimes you got to deal with a little bit of bullshit in a couple of situations to one, shake you back to your, your unconditioned self, the part of you and your thinking that you know to be true despite all of the influences outside of you. Sometimes you do have to go through some foolishness to, to realize that. But so much about this work is about what you do after that point. And how you bring other people along with you. Because in, in my head, I want everybody to make the money. I don't just want it for myself. And so if you want to know how much I charge for such and such, hit me up. I will let you know. If you want to know how I go about negotiating rates, I will let you know. And I'm also going to tell you how you got to get comfortable saying no as well. Because the enemy of progress is yes. By which I mean so many of us we get presented with these opportunities and we just say yes because one, we're told that we always need to be a team player. You always got to be a team player. So when they call you on your day off and ask you to do something, you say yes because you want to be a team player. You don't want to be the angry Black woman or the angry Black person or the, the person who doesn't help. So you do it. But you don't realize how you then become complicit in your oppression. You then become complicit in your, your exhaustion. And I'm not interested in doing that anymore. Tamar Pearson-Brown is the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence and a Clinical Associate Professor of Law at University of Pittsburgh School of Law. She's also the director of the Health Law Clinic, which operates as a medical legal partnership with UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Tamar doesn't see success as a destination, but as a constant state of pursuit. 
She told me that both for herself personally and for her colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh, success involves practicing the principles of inclusive excellence. I asked her to share more about inclusive excellence and how one works towards it. Excellence, I feel like, is such a bold assertion. I'm really influenced by Ben Bergeron, who is the coach of CrossFit New England. He coaches high-level CrossFit athletes, and he talks about excellence as being something that we stay in constant pursuit of, right? Excellence isn't that thing that you did really great one time. Excellence is the pursuit of greatness over time. So what are the things that you have to do daily to be in pursuit? And so when I think about distinguishing inclusion, which could just simply be a moment in time, like I had an event in which people felt included, when I conceptualize inclusive excellence, I'm thinking about a community that is engaged in the daily habitual pursuit of maintaining inclusion, that we don't see it as something that we can check off a list, but we see it as a communal lifestyle choice. Anel Duarte also told me that her definition of success has become community-centric. She also said that it has been informed by a deepened understanding of the need for human liberation and transcendence from the negative ramifications of trauma. Anel specializes in facilitating one-on-one and group practices under the trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed lenses. A trauma survivor herself, she holds safe space for participants to explore their internal experiences through yoga, body movement, meditation, the use of rituals, and breathing techniques. Additionally, Anel's interests center in intersectional social justice and gender violence advocacy in order to dismantle systems of oppression and to create a world where it is possible to live our lives in dignity, free from patriarchal, colonial, and capitalist violence. I don't know if the same success metrics really work when you're inviting people to explore what's happening inside or to look at the trauma or to look at the things that are coming up, I think it no longer becomes that linear power-driven model. Yes, I I think so too. Yeah, it's no longer linear. If there ever was (laughs) (laughs) to begin with, it's no longer linear. But yes, definitely that invitation to tune into what we feel, how we feel, and how we perceive things and then expand that to our collective, it shapes us differently. Like, I mean, I can speak for myself really in in these terms. If I look back to when I was a kid and I used to look at success in this way of, oh, yes, I will have my own house. I would go every day to work I'll drive my car, I'll wear skirts and heels. And (laughs) I I didn't really picture what was the job about. I just had this idea of success, which was related to this sense of economical safety. And that was my idea of success, which was obviously (laughs) very influenced by environment and, and the culture and what I saw in television and all of that. And then later on, it became more and more and more important, this blurry picture that wasn't 
there before of what was I actually doing and this is what is now the most important to have a clear picture of what I do which is being of service to others and and also being of service to to myself doing something I enjoy doing something I'm passionate about doing something <laughs> where I feel good and I, I don't mean like where I feel good all the time because it can be heavy yeah I guess my my definition of success is is that nowadays it's it's more related to to that individual and and systemic change and wellness whatever our individual success metrics are If we want to be in pursuit of them, we have to begin by determining our priorities and values. Once we've done that, we can work towards what matters to us. Luckily for me, that's something I've seen modeled for my entire life. It may seem simplistic, but if people will do with less, people get caught up on, oh, I have to have, you know, I I have this big house, I have to have this high-end car. When that's the case, you can downsize. You can make a whole lot of changes in your life to do with less, but you can also start out by taking the skills you've acquired in your job, and maybe it's something that you could go off on your own. Because I really think, I think life's too short to stay in a job where you're really unhappy. You should never be mistreated, but you have to prioritize, and you're not going to get every one of your priorities. So order your priorities, know what's non-negotiable, and then just be a little creative with the way you're thinking and take those skills from your job that you've learned and see if you could put them into some other area where you get more of what you want and need. That was my mother, Sunny Taylor, a decades-long entrepreneur with an at-home accounting practice of a few hundred active clients. In addition to raising me and my sister, Sunny is the content editor and creative collaborator for this podcast. I'm grateful to have had the kind of parent who, when I left the finance world in my 20s to write and teach yoga, encouraged me to have the courage to live authentically. She never once told me to have a fallback plan. And when I doubted my abilities, she was my biggest cheerleader and champion, encouraging me to stay the course of entrepreneurship. That's not to say that entrepreneurship doesn't have its own challenges or that it's guaranteed to be an upgrade over working for someone else. Whether we work for ourselves or are employed by someone else or by a company, it is possible to achieve whatever success metrics we set. But we have to think about what success means to us personally and what we're working towards. And by the way, being successful doesn't mean working all the time, which is something that came up in my conversation with Emma Bloxberg Fire Ovid, also known as Emma BF. Emma is a speaker, trainer, and leadership coach for women and non-binary folks in the technology industry. She has worked with hundreds of leaders to accelerate their careers, maximize their confidence, and amplify their impact. Emma and I discussed the all-too-prevalent problem of overwork and burnout. As part of that discussion, she asked me about my work life now as an entrepreneur versus how it was when I was an employee. What I can say is that when I was employed by someone else, I was working really hard for their dream and their vision and their goals. And today I'm working really hard for mine. So I do work more. I find it harder to set boundaries 
I mean, I was always crappy at setting boundaries, but I find it even harder to set them. But I will say that there's a level of freedom that I have today, but there's also a level of pressure. I mean, you mentioned being the the wage earner in your home and like working for yourself. And for me, that's a hard one. Like it's a little harder to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to be done at six o'clock tonight when I'm clear that I have to pay all of my own bills and there's still work to be done. Thank you for sharing that. Cause it, it helps me sift my thoughts. Like I, I don't think the problem is different because we, the burnout in the entrepreneurial community and the burnout it's burnout period. But I think the pathways to preventing burnout, to avoiding burnout, to mitigating burnout, however you want to say it, is different, especially when you're looking at solo entrepreneurs. Because when I'm working, I mostly work with women who who work in companies. A lot of the conversations we have around is, okay, who else is on your team? Who else can support this type of work? What's being prioritized across the company? What can you say yes to and what can you say no to? And that really matters. And then, you know, it it is a different game in the entrepreneurial space, but I see a lot of the same issues, which like you said, work hard, work hard, work hard, just keep working. But again, if we don't have that space in either community to be like, okay, but why am I working so hard? Elizabeth Liz Taylor is an assistant professor in the Sport and Recreation Management Department at Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, whose work examines gender discrimination, homophobia, sexual harassment, and assault within the athletic industry. Liz spoke about burnout, too, and she linked it to the dehumanization and discrimination that occurs in many industries. And I think oftentimes we try to separate employees from their personal life because I think we oftentimes just want to think about the things that we need to get done. And we don't care how they get it done and we don't care what they're leaving behind. But I think if we focused more on, again, thinking about the well-being of our colleagues and thinking about them as humans and people first, we would realize that we have more in common um, than we think. And so I think when you allow folks to to integrate their family into the workspace, I think it just creates a more inclusive environment because you're saying, I don't care about this just one compartmentalized aspect of you as the employee for this organization. I care about you as a whole person, and I care about the folks who you engage with outside of, of work, and whether that's your partner, whether that's kids, whether that's your parents, whether that's your grandparents, or, you know, whatever family looks like for, for that person, it allows them to, to be more of themselves. Enabling people to be more of themselves is something LaTanya Wilkins attempts to achieve in her work. LaTanya is the founder of the Change Coaches LLC, an organization dedicated to creating revolutionary leadership development, culture change, and extraordinary personal growth. She is also the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. And she told me that she sees authenticity as a critical component of success. I think because I'm authentic, I've finally found my calling because I'm very fortunate because what I put out there in the world, it attracts people and it attracted employees. So I was able to hire great people. It attracts clients. What's really neat is all the inbound stuff that we get. And whenever I'm qualifying clients or kind of going through everything with them, they're usually a fit because they know exactly what they're going to get. So 
since I put everything out there, I'm sure that there's people that are like, who does she think she is? You know, whatever. I don't care. But they don't come. Not everyone will like us or want what we offer or want to partner with us personally or professionally. Accepting that can give us the freedom to be who we are, as well as permission not to align ourselves with organizations that stifle our ability to thrive. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. Here's Emma again. There's so much wrong in our society 
which I know you talk about a lot and I think about a lot. And there's also so much that does work and there are good leaders and good people. And so I, I'm again, it's like, it's no accident. You know, I have chosen over time, every time I work with someone where I don't agree with their leadership, I don't align with their values. I've made a mental note. That is a no for me moving forward. And so every year, every person I meet, I'm now clear of who I am saying yes to and who I'm saying no to. And it comes back to that self-worth. It comes back to that inner belief. And it comes back down to those boundaries. Because now when I, I mean, like the last company I was at, the turnaround time between when I saw what was happening at the top of leadership to when I left the company was like two months. It wasn't that long of a time. But in my first job out of college, where there was a lot of toxicity in leadership, and it took me six to nine months to leave. So I think we bring it back to self-worth, boundaries, clarity of what you want and who you're going to who you're going to say yes to, but also more importantly, who and what spaces are you going to say no to? Self-worth, clarity, boundaries, and the ability to extricate ourselves from toxic environments are essential as we move towards whatever conception of success we establish. But that's easy to say and harder to implement. Also, it becomes all the more difficult when we take into account issues of identity, agency, and privilege, or lack thereof. Joyce Jelks, known personally and professionally as JJ, is the head of people and culture at Wyden and Kennedy, New York, an Army major, the chief founding member relationship engagement manager for Sean Johnson, and founder of Ottawa Park HR Advisory. Here's what she told me. I would tell you that being a person of color, sometimes we don't get the opportunity (laughs) to collapse or fail because we've had to overcome so many obstacles naturally through our lives, like navigating, you know, white spaces, being in places where you may be the only Black executive at the table. So I would say that a lot of folks, you know, especially people of color have just grown to be really resilient because sometimes also we may be the first people in our family with undergraduate degrees, master's degrees, first folks that have worked at corporations and not, you know, in manufacturing companies where, where I'm from, A lot of, you know, the Black folks will go and work at Ford and Jeep and Chrysler. So as far as like my career trajectory is a little bit different, you know, so I'm probably one of the first around me or in my circle to really be, or my circle from growing up to really have cracked the corporate thing. So that's what I would say. It's like when you grow up, woman, Black, I was a single mom at one point, and you just learn. you got to push through. You can't fail. I had no luxury because if I don't make it, like, You know, I don't have anybody to depend on, really. JJ said that there have been times when her professional success has led to loneliness. Times when she's reached a certain level only to realize she's the only person at that level who looks like her or has had similar life experiences. She said being a first and an only can lead to a lot of pressure to always be achieving because she's seen not just as a person, but as a representative of other Black women and someone for those coming up behind her to admire and emulate which, while inspiring on some level, also means that she's not someone who's had the luxury of making mistakes. 
Travell told me they had similar experiences as a Black trans journalist, and that even though they refused to suppress themselves in working towards their goals, they also made sure to dot their I's and cross their T's. I'm sure I've missed out on opportunities because I was too loud, too gay, too trans, too Black to a lot of things. I know that I am a talented motherfucker. I don't know if I can curse. You can't go right ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's for an adult audience. Go right ahead. I know that I am super talented. And I don't say that to be cocky, but just to do an accurate assessment of what I bring to a table. And I knew that I would be successful by whatever definition I come up with for success, no matter what. And so I had the audacity to dream big and to think huge and to also be able to articulate what I could bring to a table that my colleagues couldn't. When I was at the LA Times, I got in a lot of trouble because I would always say that I can do what every single person here can do, but they can't do what I do. And that's just by the nature of us being marginalized folks who've grown up in a society where we've had to adapt. And we've had to assimilate. And so, like, I can do what all these other white reporters are doing. But I promise you, not nary one of them can do what I do. I think it was the combination of the talent, the skill set, and the personality that ultimately was undeniable. Because you can come into a space and you can talk your shit and you can be all, you can be confident, you can be cocky, you can be whatever. But if the work isn't good, they're going to get you out of there. But my work was great. My work was unassailable. And it was important to me that it was because I knew that by challenging so much that I was coming up against, it would always come back to the work. And if the work wasn't good, they would try to figure out a way to get me out, either intentionally or unintentionally. And so like the work is always important. Jonathan also shared about the burden of representation. That burden of representation, that burden of responsibility is definitely real. It's something that can weigh on you heavily. And oftentimes we have to remind ourselves that even though there is this burden of representation, it takes a lot to be honest with yourself and confront the fact that you don't have to live up to this certain standard or as bad as it may sound, right? The performance that you have should not reflect on every other Black person or every other racially minoritized individual you should just be who you are and be authentic to yourself and let the chips fall where they may. Jonathan said it's important to interrogate the perceptions of those who are evaluating our work and our workplace performances, because their evaluations can be highly subjective. And at the same time, he acknowledged that for racialized minorities, part of the path to success often involves presenting ourselves, not as who we authentically are, but in order to appeal to our current audience. This idea of code switching, per se, of not changing who you are necessarily, but changing how you may present yourself in a certain situation, depending on who is around um, and being strategic, right? Code switching isn't just something that is that's necessary. It becomes intuitive, but it's also a very a strategic process. And it's not something that I think People who do it take lightly. They do it in order to survive in a situation or to thrive in a situation, not necessarily because they want to do it. I don't want to just have to change who I am and and maybe how I talk, depending on what door I enter or who's in that room necessarily. But I'm doing it because I want to be able to interact with someone without resistance or I want to be able to interact with someone 
without having to answer certain questions or why am I doing this or why did I say this? What do I mean by that? And so I do it in order to be able to survive in certain situations. And so this process of choosing how you show up or how you present yourself is very strategic depending on what goals you want to accomplish. Not all of us know exactly what we want to accomplish or even want to get all of our fulfillment from work. But the consensus of those I interviewed seems to be that it's important to do work we can feel reasonably good about that allows us to honor our values and remain aligned to our personal priorities. Here's Deb again. So when people are looking for a job and someplace that they work, it goes against their core values. I've been in that position. Like that's a terrible position to be in. You're like biting your tongue so hard it bleeds every day because you need that paycheck. So when you're able, if you're ever able to make the change and like branch out into something else, look at the company or look at the person that you're working for. And if their values are so far out of alignment with you, keep looking. AC has constructed his work life in such a way that he can be authentically himself and share as much or as little as he chooses. And that's something that has come with time, experience, entrepreneurship, and working in DEI, which is an industry that, although far from perfect, typically encourages inclusivity. It's been very freeing in in some ways to be able to set the stage When someone reaches out to me and says, hey, I'd I'd like for you to come and and help our company with whatever it is that they're going through, they're coming to me already knowing often these parts of of who I am, knowing my identity. And then sometimes I think, and in some ways, that is what what has drawn them in the first place, right? And so there is this expectation and this acceptance kind of from the beginning that I can't say that I experienced ever in the workforce. I was always just hoping for the best, seeding little bits of myself here and there and seeing how they were received and seeing if it was okay to share a little more, that type of thing. Identifying one or two trusted people that I could actually share different aspects of my life with. Whether it be saying that I'm transgender or even once I got to the point where I was comfortable sharing the fact that I was transgender, sharing with someone that I am polyamorous or that I am omnisexual or that I am any of these other things. And someone might say, well, what, how is any of that even relevant? Well, it's the small things, right? It's, it's how these things are woven into our lives. So for example, as someone who's polyamorous and I, I know it's small things. If I have pictures on my desk of my partner or partners, is it okay to have a picture of my partners, plural? because I'm polyamorous on my desk? And is that something that would be accepted? I personally think that it should be just as accepted as any other family structure that is on someone's desk. Or just as accepted as we would expect at this juncture, we would expect for it to be okay for an interracial couple to be on someone's desk, or we would expect for it to be okay for a same-sex couple to be on someone's desk. Well, it should be okay for someone's triad or their quad to be on their desk, right? But we don't know, these things aren't really discussed. And so you're kind of tiptoeing and trying to ascertain, is this safe? Is this okay? Can I do this? Whereas an entrepreneur, I can have a picture on my desk of whoever I want to have on my desk can be on my desk because my boss is pretty cool. He's really, really affirming. And so... (laughs) (laughs) 
um, in that way, it's been freeing for sure. In case it wasn't clear, AC is his own boss. And yeah, he's awesome and affirming, and that's been freeing for him. But whether we're our own bosses or not, we can work to create the kinds of environments where people are encouraged to love what they do and be who they are. And that doesn't mean that who they are today will be who they are forever, or that the type of work that calls to them at this particular moment is going to continue to call to them in the future. That was the case for Shauna Hawking, a thought leader, keynote speaker, and writer with 20 years' experience working in leadership development. Shauna is the author of One Bold Move a Day and the host of the One Bold Move a Day podcast. I feel really fortunate that I found my career at age 18. I was one of those moments in the movies where things move fast and slow at the same time, and it was a combination of everything that had been important to me up until that point. And I worked in my dream career for 20 years, and I was very grateful to be able to do that at institutions that were important to me and that I valued. And during the pandemic, I think everybody started to think about what is my purpose? What do I want to be known for? How can I do the most good? And a combination of things happening all at once felt like this was my time to be able to serve as many leaders and particularly women in the workplace, as possible to help them fulfill their potential. So I made that leap in January and feel so joyful that I'm able to pursue what I feel like is now my my second dream career and my calling. Part of what spoke to me about Shauna's trajectory was that she's been able to make changes from a place of love rather than a place of fear. I pointed that out to her. Carolise, I think that's a really important point that many people leave because things are bad. And I firmly believe that you can love something and leave it in order to grow. And oftentimes when I have found myself running away from something when it was difficult, it showed up again later on in a different format. And so the advice that I give to women that I mentor or to clients is to run towards something. And it just changes the way that you approach it when you do. When we're running from something, it's hard to find our way to what feels like success. But when we're running towards what matters to us, leaving things behind feels like less of a sacrifice. In fact, letting go can be liberating. Here's Sunny again. For me, success was being able to be a mom to my kids and raise good kids, make a living and buy the things I did feel like I wanted and So for me, I I feel like I achieved success, although I feel like someone else looking in, especially I live in a very affluent town. I think they would think I don't have a huge house. I don't wear designer clothes. I don't drive a Mercedes. They might not feel the same, but I have a great car. I have a great house. I have some rental properties. I feel very successful. Well, and I was going to say that, I mean, you're understated, but I kind of know what your balance sheet is. I mean, I guess even just from an asset perspective, you are successful in that way, even though it seems like you didn't chase money, that wasn't your driving force. You did it your way and maybe it took a little longer and maybe it's been a more circuitous route, but it money has come in the end anyway. You summed it up exactly, Dara. That's beautiful. I would encourage people, if you follow your passion, if you have integrity about what you do, if you work hard, if you do what you say you're going to do, I feel like money will come. It can't not come. And I think so. My money came, even though 
That was not the goal. The goal was to be a stay-at-home mom who could provide for her children. For my mother, being able to do things her way, remain authentic, have integrity, and follow her goal of being a stay-at-home mom has led to both internal and external success. The same is true for Christina Glickman, founder of the Extra Love Army. Christina is a TEDx speaker, podcaster, and the author of the best-selling book, Extra, The Art of Being. It kind of makes me chuckle a little bit because... I'm going to say this and you're going to think I'm crazy because you've seen me in person and I've got like crazy spiky platinum hair. I usually wear like big, big shoulders. So I'm a lot. So what it says about me before I even open my mouth is a lot. And the irony is that I'm actually not trying to do that, but I don't know how to show up another way because it's just me. And so what I've learned, I'm almost 50, is that to show up as anything that's not me is exhausting. And my confidence is so born out of that I'm so clear that I don't know. I'm so clear that if I can show up and just bring me, like even to this podcast, if I had to show up here and say, gosh, I know all about this and I know all about that, ultimately I would fail. But instead I can say, oh my goodness, I'm showing up with you as this incredible woman and I can just share my heart and where I am and who I am and maybe it will impact someone. And that's gotta be enough. And so the more I have years in this life, the more I realize that, showing up as me, which is, I think, hard for everyone to do, is the most liberating and freeing way to live and me giving my best self to what I have to offer. It's a little bit of this fear thing, right? It's like, if I show you who I am, will you still like me? And that's not something a lot of us are willing to do, but I find that it's much more difficult to pretend. When I met Christina, my first impression of her was that she is a woman who refuses to dim her light and shows up authentically. And by doing that, she creates the space for others to show up in their fullness and brightness as well. Rocky is also someone who shows up authentically and refuses to dim her light. But she told me that rather than others drawing strength from that, there have been those who tried to suppress it. Rocky and her husband, Jeff Maynor, sat down for a joint interview. Jeff is a financial services professional and full-time entrepreneur. Prior to his transition to entrepreneurship, he worked in IT telecommunications. And prior to that, he served eight and a half years in the United States Navy. So the entrepreneurship journey, I didn't even know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know that I was unemployable And that there were gifts in me that I was ready to materialize and give away, package up and like give to the world. As a matter of fact, like my boldness, my brightness, I was made, I allowed others to make me ashamed of that. I allowed others to put a shade on. So when we met, I wasn't a shrunken flower. That wasn't it at all. I was still bright, but bright in a way that I was still conform to the corporate world, right? So October, the month we got married, I decided, hey, I really want to, I want to kick the tires on entrepreneurship. I think I have a lot to offer. I want to get in front of public speaking and things of that nature. And the gifts that I have in corporate, because they kept telling me I care too much. I'm like, well, I'm gonna take my care somewhere else. For Rocky, the realization that she needed to go where her gifts would be valued was the beginning of the path to greater self-actualization and work-life integration. But she said it took a while to decondition and deprogram herself. 
Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. Timothy also shared that it's been a process for him to let go of defining himself by other people's metrics. He said that his current employer, Temple University, is supportive of him bringing his authentic self forward, but that he had to reprogram himself to stop defining himself by societal metrics. What I came to the realization was that I'm not as concerned anymore about some of these perceptions and these categorizations and things like that, especially because I played the game the way I was told to play it. And it's times was still facing many of the adversities and hardships that are incumbent upon climbing the corporate ladder. So I've tried it your way and I've repressed and suppressed various parts of who I was. I'm just going to be me. And those types of things are what even helped open up the doors to what I'm doing now. So again, For me, that is a better determinant of success, being who I was designed to be and leaving it all on the table, so to speak, to die empty, so to speak. And so that's how I look at success now, being the best iteration of who I was made to be. Am I achieving that? Am I fulfilling my purpose? And so I'm not necessarily as concerned with some of these other conventional measures anymore. If we want to be the best iterations of who we were designed to be, or even not the best, but just to feel proud of ourselves and our accomplishments, it's important to be willing to develop. And by the way, personal development is also professional development. Stu Kranz is a mindset success and relationship coach who works with people individually and in groups to empower them into ownership of their lives. Before stepping into coaching, Stu had a successful career in sales and marketing within professional baseball, having the opportunity to work for the New York Yankees and the Atlanta Braves, as well as several affiliated minor league clubs. He is also the production and development assistant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. I got into personal development in a really significant way, starting by listening to podcasts, reading self-help books, and finally signed myself up for a fully immersive emotional intelligence and leadership program where I met you, Darylise. I don't know how else to describe it other than it was the most alive I had felt in my adulthood. And so I ended up starting a career as a life coach, which Three cheers for entrepreneurialism. It is the single greatest personal development program you can put yourself through. I am 
having new breakthroughs every single day and plenty of breakdowns. But I love what I do because I get to help people in creating the most kick-ass, fulfilling version of their lives that they probably wouldn't have been able to do on their own. Or better yet, in a lot of cases, I'm just helping them get rid of what's in the way mentally. It's not that they weren't capable. It's just that their egos or whatever limiting beliefs they had were sabotaging them from their own greatness. And so that's what I do today. I work with private clients and also in small groups. It's just the most meaningful, fulfilling work I've ever gotten to do. Stu mentioned that various factors can get in the way and sabotage people from realizing their greatness, by which he meant living lives of purpose, authenticity, and alignment with their own values. Some of these factors include lack of self-worth, measuring ourselves by other people's metrics, lack of knowledge or support, and being part of an environment that fosters competition rather than collaboration. When I was trying to slug it out and make it in the sports world, very similar to actual sports being played, it was for me to win, you have to lose. It was like that climbing the ranks in an absolutely cutthroat industry where if somebody actually gets a full-time salaried role, they're not going to let it go. And for those of you that don't know, baseball or most sports jobs actually are the beast where you get hired on for like a one-year contract and you basically are told, go prove your worth. Why should we keep you? And I remember managers saying to me directly, you are worth to this organization what your sales number is on the board. And I remember it was just this whiteboard sitting in the corner of the sales floor, but it was such a source of anxiety to see my last name and my dollar amount and how much it either did or did not increase in a week was something I would turn myself inside out for. And it wasn't until I left and actually gave myself the headspace to think more broadly, like there just had to be a different way. There had to be a way to create a living, create an existence where I didn't have to stomp on other people to get ahead myself. Organizations that devalue people tend to be shaped by the faulty philosophy that there is an imaginary ladder of worth, and they tend to position things like wealth, whiteness, physical ability, gender identity, sexual orientation, and other elements of privileged identity as pinnacles of achievement, which puts those who don't fit into those molds in the painful position of either having to pretend to be something they aren't or having to hit their heads against the proverbial concrete ceiling. Here's Jonathan again. We can argue that code switching in and of itself is a problematic aspect that we have to do this and we feel like we have to do it in order to survive. But it's also reality, unfortunately. And so we have to be able to adapt if we want to achieve certain goals. And so I think it it really just depends on being true to yourself because at a certain point, we develop psychologically, psychosocially to a point where we're comfortable with being who we are and we're not relying on other people's acceptance. Uh, we're not relying on other people's expectations and satisfaction. And so that's where it can get problematic is when, if we're doing it to protect whiteness, if we're changing who we are to protect the sanctity or the satisfaction of an individual who may have power over us or who may have privilege. And so 
it's always this internal battle of, of figuring out how you want to show up versus what goals do you have and what do you want to achieve out of this social interaction. It's important to be true to ourselves while also being mindful of our goals and objectives. And this can be a delicate balancing act, especially when our life goals don't fit other people's expectations. I had a question for my mother. Was there a lot of pressure to do things differently? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I think you were about a year old and my father, your grandfather, who you adore, we both adore, he said, well, when are you going to put her in daycare? Because you need to get a really good job so you can afford college. And with all the confidence in the world, I just said, I'm not going to put my daughter in daycare. I'm going to raise her. But if I raise her with values of self-esteem and responsibility and integrity and and give her a good education, she'll figure out where to get the money to get into a good school. Segway, fast forward 15, 18 years, and she ended up at NYU, summa cum laude. (laughs) So I'd say that all kind of worked out. For me, as for Sunny, it has worked out. But I'm not sure graduating NYU summa cum laude had much to do with my feelings of fulfillment or my belief that at least when it comes to work, I'm doing what I was meant to do. When I look back, I can see that my college days were spent in self-inflicted torture. At that time in my life, I was desperate to achieve outward success. I studied all the time, held two jobs, took up to 18 credits a semester, restricted my way down to 96 pounds, and was in and out of eating disorder treatment facilities. I was trying to prove myself through grades, thinness, validation, and a punishing work ethic, none of which worked. But that's because success doesn't necessarily equate to productivity. And it certainly isn't a reflection of how much time we spend working. Here's Liz again. Everybody talks about engagement as this very positive workplace outcome. And you want to find engaged employees because they're going to be more productive. They're going to be more committed to your organization, so on and so forth. But what we really wanted to dig into is the dark side of that and thinking about what happens when employees become overly engaged. So work addiction can look like doing unpaid overtime. It can look like not being able to put your work down even when you go home. It can look like feeling bad if you're not working on the weekends, that type of thing. And so work engagement is thought of as really, really positive and and again has all of these positive outcomes, not only for the individual but also for the organization in terms of higher profit margins, greater team success. That's what What a lot of coaches, after they lose, they'll say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to go back in and we're going to work harder or we're going to work more hours or, you know, whatever it is. And that creates kind of this environment that really tells employees you should overly engage. You should become essentially addicted to your work. You can't put it down. And so then what comes with this is burnout. We know that there's a direct line between work addiction and burnout. We know that there is decreased job satisfaction from workaholism and overwork climates. We know that folks' well-being, whether we're talking about their sleep quality, their physical health, their mental well-being, they all take a hit when employees engage in overwork and, and they become addicted to their work. And we actually just finished data analysis on a project where we were looking at the relationship between hours worked and success, and we were not surprised to find that the more hours worked had no correlation with success. So this idea that I have to work more hours, I have to work harder, there's no merit to that. 
working more isn't necessarily going to lead to success. And even if it does, the price we end up paying to quote-unquote achieve may be too high and too punishing. It can also require us to become people we only vaguely recognize. That's what happened to Alita Miranda Wolf, author of Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last, and CEO and founder of Ethos, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging firm dedicated to closing the opportunity gap for underrepresented and underserved groups. I learned to hide myself, and it made me very successful. And I don't forget that, that I was able to reach what some people have called career pinnacles early in my life came from being really, really, really good at being somebody else. Being someone else isn't a sustainable or desirable strategy. And in the end, it won't leave us feeling successful anyway. In fact, in order to even begin asking ourselves, what does success mean to me? We have to have the audacity to go inward and become curious about who we are and what we want. Here's Jeff Maynard, who I introduced earlier. There's a a much better way to live life. And when I understood that and started dusting off my dreams and my goals, and then we started aligning our dreams and our goals together, that's when things started to align for us. To disconnect from our dreams and or to sacrifice too heavily in the pursuit of success can have catastrophic consequences. Timothy has thought a lot about the cost of success for those who have gone before him, which is why his definition of success requires the incorporation of self-care. What I have been more deliberate about in recent years is trying to take better care of myself throughout the process of doing the work. I actually was having a conversation with a colleague about this recently, and I told them, Most of my heroes from history did not make it to old age. Many were assassinated or the stress and the toll of the work crippled them. In many ways, I am immensely grateful for their sacrifice and them willing to risk life, limb, and opportunity for better outcomes for us. But still, I think that there is great value in taking care of myself and being able to be present both for my family and for those that I serve. So for me, that means being more deliberate about rest and understanding that there will always be something to do. And so just knowing that there's times where I need to disengage and be able to recharge. Additionally, I guess in a broader sense too, I look at how I'm not doing this work alone. There are millions of people both here in the U.S. and across the globe who are committed to doing similar efforts and just knowing that things can continue if I pause to rest. As I mentioned, some of my heroes from history, just thinking about how many of them fought to see a day that they did not witness. And just knowing that some of the things I'm fighting for, I may not see in my lifetime, but just knowing that the goal is to keep working towards that. And then lastly, and I think most importantly, I'm a man of faith and my faith really helps to recharge, rejuvenate, to guide, to center, to anchor me. And so with that, I tap into that as well, just to make sure that I am making ways to ensure that I am a whole person as I go into the work that I'm doing. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. 
You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Fundamental to the realization of sustainable success is the acknowledgement of our needs as people and our ongoing commitment to honoring ourselves. It may sound corny, but for everyone I've spoken with who felt successful, according to whatever definition they'd established for themselves, their words and their examples conveyed an admirable level of self-acceptance and even self-love. Here's Deb again. This is with almost every single person. No one feels worthy. And it's breaking through and like helping people see how worthy they are. You're worthy. Just the fact that you're here on this earth drawing breath, like, come on, like it's a miracle. We're miracles. So how do you communicate that to people in a way that lands? Well, I usually say it like that. And then, (laughs) and then we dig into What's all the things that are making you like that you grew up? Cause it all starts right. Most of the time there's stuff from when we're kids, like, okay, let's weed through like, okay, when did you first start feeling this way or feeling that way or having these experiences? And then, okay, let's clear them out and let's work for them. And let's let go of those limiting beliefs and let's, you know, let's look for the evidence of how awesome you are. It's there. You just don't think that these things are awesome. Speaking of love, worth, success, and awesomeness, it's not enough to succeed and then hold those successes to ourselves, clutching them like designer handbags we don't want anyone to steal. In order to move from an individual sense of success to societal success, or better yet, to a legacy we can bestow on future generations, we have to think beyond ourselves, which is why Charlotte Alexander attempts to equip her students with the tools to be successful after graduation. Charlotte holds the Connie D. and Ken McDaniel Women Lead Chair as an Associate Professor of Law and Analytics at the Colleges of Business and Law, where she uses computational methods to study legal text, with a particular focus on understanding how courts process and resolve employment disputes and other types of civil lawsuits. She also founded and directs the university's Legal Analytics Lab, which works towards a legal system that embraces data to solve intractable problems and create a more just society. It's difficult because what we were saying a minute ago about equipping students with a set of skills that allow them to go and move comfortably and powerfully within our existing structures But I also don't want to give them the message that they're not good enough in and of themselves, right? So I think it's very important to be comfortable talking about yourself, talking about your qualifications. I think it's important to have a resume that that expresses who you are. 
So these are the keys to the kingdom. And I want to equip students with all of those ways of doing and being professionally. But I also am really worried about the implicit messaging and all of that, which is that there's one way to be and act and speak and dress and look, and that that's the way to success and leadership. And so I try really hard to say, I think of these as a set of tools, but that you should think of them that way as well and be able to deploy them strategically to advance your goals or not. But I'd rather that my students have the ability to go stand up and give a talk and feel fine about that than not have that ability. I think it's hard and it's something I struggle with, especially as a white cis woman who is coming from an older generation than my students. And they're coming up in an environment that's really different from what I came up in. So I want to give them what I know and what I've learned, but not also undermine who they are or tell them there's only one way to be because I'd like them to change things (laughs) in the future. Here's what JJ told me about creating change in the future. I actually want to make real legitimate change. And I really want to get in spaces where I can motivate people to not listen to the noise and not let somebody else tell them what their potential is. I really want to just honestly do that and and help create that confidence and cut through the ambiguity for specifically BIPOC talent and women. So yeah, so that's a huge focus because a lot of times I'm telling you, I would be executive team, only Black person, only woman, and it's not okay. And now in organizations where, like I mentioned, like the circles are getting smaller, where you're like, oh, we know each other. We're like one degree of separation. And that's cool and everything, but that's not okay. So these are the things mentally that I'm really focused on. Yeah, I'm really trying to fix some stuff. Likewise, Tamar wants to create change in the future. And she believes that it's by changing our everyday conversations and interactions that we can do that. I believe that we should do everything that we can to leave the world a little bit better than we found it. And my hope through this work is that I leave everyone that I interact with feeling a little bit better about themselves than they did before they started, that I leave every problem that I try to solve a little bit better for my having laid a hand on it than it was before. I want to do my part. You know, I think all of the great people who have really changed our world and have inspired us to do justice They got in with their gift. And so as I continue to try to strive to find my gift, to figure out what I have to offer, I'm motivated by the hope that I can do my work and leave the people that I touch through my work a little bit better off than than they were before, before the interaction. For Damon, giving back is inextricably linked to the value system he's learned as a result of recovery, which is why he sees a program of recovery as something that could benefit not just addicts, but all people. I honestly think that every person in the world should have to work a program recovery by about the second grade, because a program recovery gives us tools to live a normal, healthy, serene life with. Because in a program recovery, 
we understand that we don't control a lot of things going on in the world. I'm an addict. So as an addict in recovery, I had to deal with control issues. I thought I controlled all these people to manipulate people to do what I want to do. But the reality is I control four things. I control what I think, what I say, what I feel, and what I do. These are really the four things I control. But if I work on those four things and work on myself and work on my life and becoming a better person, that keeps my side of the street clean. And it's so important for me to keep my side of the street. I can't, t- I can't tell my neighbor to clean up their side of the street. And if you want to have trash in front of your house, that's fine. But I know this, that if you don't keep your side of the street clean, you, your house, your property, whatever it is, looks bad. And you know what? You are your own sanitation work. I tell people all the time that the, one of the most important jobs in all of society is the garbage man, the sanitation worker. Because if garbage men tomorrow decided to quit doing their jobs, they say, hey, we're going to go on strike. We're not picking up the trash anymore. Doesn't take long before society breaks down because no one wants to live in a world where trash is everywhere, right? When no one wants to live in a world where you can't see houses because garbage fills up the streets. And in your own life, you are your own sanitation worker. And if you don't take out the trash and garbage clutters up your house and in front of your house, that's on you because I have to be my own sanitation worker. And that's what I do every day. I try to keep my side of the street clean. And keeping my side of the street clean means every single night, I'm asking God what I believe God to be, because everybody gets to pick their own version of God, is that, hey, I'm saying, hey, God, look, man, let me let me have a conversation. Was I a good person today? You know, what did I do to put back in the stream of life? Do I owe someone an apology? Because if I have apologies, I gotta make my, I've got to make my amends. I, that's garbage. I don't want to hold that in. But I always ask, do I owe someone forgiveness? Because forgiveness. We all want to be forgiven for things we've done, but are we prepared to forgive others for the things they do to us, especially the people that have never asked for forgiveness? But we have to. Because I would argue that the opposite of forgiveness is resentment. And when you have a resentment, that's bottled up hate. And hate corrodes the containers contain them. And if you keep these resentments in, it'll eat you up from the inside out. A resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's crazy when we hold these resentments inside. So honestly, dear Elise, every night I let God have my resentments. I let him have the hate, the anger, because I can't take that into a new day. Because if I take that into a new day, now yesterday's trash is clogging up. Everything's going to happen in my day. I've got to start new every single day because this is a one day at a time type deal. Success is about more than what we acquire. It's about who we become and about the impact we have on others and the circles of support that we create and maintain. Here's Timothy again. I often tell people that none of us make it anywhere of significance alone. And so the idea of being self-made is also a myth, but I think that it takes a time seeing and recognizing the support that you have. So I mentioned my wife being supportive. She was, she was very supportive and encouraging me to pursue what was seemingly most advantageous for my career. And just also just helping to see what was most distinct for me in terms of my abilities and where that best aligned. And then also had family, my parents, my in-laws, and other friends coming alongside me, supporting and encouraging me. And when I first started practicing, too, I had colleagues who were supportive of me and just helping me to navigate the terrain of being in the law. When I first entered into academia, I had colleagues as well who were just helping me navigate this new space and things like that. So I absolutely have had some support along the way. And for me, it's important for me to not only to remember that and to be grateful and appreciate that, but to also to be that for someone else who's coming behind me as well. And here's Travel again. I'm not interested in making it alone. 
if I make it alone, then I am no different than the white man next to me who sold whomever to get in their position. I'm not interested in that. I'm bringing my people with me by hook or by crook. We are going to make it and we're going to be able to not only hold each other, but also hold each other accountable as we create spaces that reflect the fullness of our collective lived experiences, but that also correct the record. I'm very interested in correcting the record. I'm very interested in ensuring that we take a look at that archive and say, hey, this was a problem motivated by white supremacy and anti-Blackness and all the other isms and obias and how we are doing something different. Doing something different requires breaking old cycles, which can happen at work, but often begins at home. Here are Rocky and Jeff again. So the kids in my family who are just as confused as most of the adults, they don't know what they want to be when they grow up. I'm like, stop asking kids what you want to be. Ask them how they want to be. What kind of impact do they want to have? Stop labeling them in careers where they find that there's no fulfillment or what they're really looking for. Help them to find needs and fill the need. And maybe it is in teaching. Maybe it is in medicine. Maybe it is in law. But how do they want to be? Maybe they don't want to interact with people. But help them to know themselves early so they can love themselves, right? So with that and just discovering that and then the road just kept opening up and I just kept finding opportunities and in the opportunities I I was like being pruned and really tested. Our marriage was a test of that, of who I am, what I want, how I want to be, the kind of children I wanted to rear and the stamp on this world they would be kind of thing, you know, starting manifesting, like, these dreams are so much bigger. I don't even know what to say behind that. That's so spot on. I think the other thing that I would add to that is, which is where we are passionate, is making sure that people know how to do better. Because it's one thing to have the belief that you you deserve the abundance. But if you don't know better, you still can't do right. Somebody that doesn't have discipline that wins the lottery, what typically happens a couple of years later? They're back to being broke again. They didn't have the discipline and they didn't know what to do with what was given to them. That's just what we're about is just making sure that people are educated and understand what to do with what they have so that they can do better. You know better, you can do better. Yeah. No matter how little or no matter how much, it starts now. Wherever you are, you start now where you are. And then grow from there. But you grow from there and grow from there. Because you can only hear the audio and can't see the video of our interview, I'll tell you that when she spoke about growing, Rocky pointed to her head, then her heart, signifying that growth is about love and about learning. Steve Bowler, a.k.a. Stand Tall Steve, is an educational thought leader, author, and motivational speaker, the author of the book Ideas, 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 and creator of the podcast, The Stand Tall Leadership Show. He also cited learning as a critical component of success. Don't stop learning in life, and whatever you learn, use it in some way, period. Carry yourself well with whatever you're gaining, your experiences, in a positive way as possible. There's enough negativity rolling around. There's a lot of things that can tick you off and get you mad. But as you learn new things, stand a little taller, 
be a little prouder of who you are and what you can bring to this world, whatever that level might be. And go, go for it. Make it happen. I think that's that's my main thing. I, I want to be a representation of that. I want people to see me and say, hey, I'd like to be like that guy. Or he has something about him that's pretty good. That's I think I could be a little bit better too. I hope that every interaction that I have with somebody, I would love for that to be that way. As we learn, it's important to continue to check back in with our gifts and our goals. Stu has a hope for you. I actually hope this is permission for people to just follow their dreams, follow their ambitions more than anything. And no matter where you're at, just stand in the question of what's going to bring me joy? What is going to further me to where I want to go? Likewise, Deb has a hope for each of you, and it's the same hope she has for every one of her clients as she supports them with evaluating their relationship with what success means to them. I hope that they emerge with that they fall in love with themselves and that they realize how valuable they are and how much the world needs them and that they get out of their way to go do things that light them up, no matter what anybody else thinks. Like my biggest message is for people to stop comparing their real lives with these highlight reels that they see every day and figure out what makes you happy, what lights you up, not what somebody else thinks. So something that I talk about with my clients, and I'll say to everybody that comes to work with me, tell me your values. What do you value? And I get this all the time. Values, my values, what are my values? And like, everybody's like my family, honesty, you know, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, no, they're the basic ones. Like, what do you value? Like, do you value growth? Do you value diversity? Do you value contribution? Like does Google values and then like circle 10 that are your top 10? Like, what do you value? Because when you know what you value and what's a priority for you, it's easy to set boundaries and make decisions. I invite you to take the time to get clear on your values, then to make decisions that align with those values. Because whatever your definition of success, the path to its realization will inevitably involve self-actualization, integrity, and authenticity. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Thank you to this episode's guests, Damon West, Jonathan Howe, Rocky Maynor, Jeff Maynor, A.C. Folks, Deb Atella, Timothy Welbeck, Travel Anderson, Tamar Pearson-Brown, Anel Duarte, Sunny Taylor, Emma B.F., Liz Taylor, Latanya Wilkins, Joyce J.J. Jelks, Shauna Hawking, Christina Glickman, Stu Cranes, Alita Miranda Wolf, and Charlotte Alexander, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Dara Lise Lyons, with Azaria Keys, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, 
Zach James, co-collaborator and marketing manager. Paul Kondo, assistant producer and editor. Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant. Stuart Kraintz, production and development assistant. And Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Dara Lise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.